Hello, this is Hillary Burns, and welcome to another episode of Get Real and Get Free, where we say what can't be said, and the triple A formula for freedom, which is awareness, acceptance, and action. And today, I have with me comedian Bruce Lipsky, who has performed as a comedian all over New York City and Long Island in clubs such as Dangerfields, Broadway Comedy Club, Greenwich Village Comedy Club, Governors, and my father's club, amongst others. So, welcome, Bruce. So I do appreciate the opportunity to be here and to share my story with your audience, and obviously with you as well. Yeah, this is great. I always look forward to getting my word out there. Thank, Thank you. you. Getting my word out, and I have plenty of words usually. Uh, born and bred in Queens, New York. I, I'm a New Yorker. I'm true and blue. I tend to talk a little bit fast, but it's okay. But I, I usually have a lot to say. So I'm, I'm really excited about being here and talking about life and everything else that comes along with it. Yes. Awesome. And so I'm excited to share some of my inspiration and challenges that I've had in life as well and have overcome them. And so, as I said, hopefully I can inspire some people in your audience as well to stay motivated and stay focused and you know, look at the positive. The glass is always not half empty, it's half full. All right, thank you. So when we were talking earlier, you started talking about the severe car accident you had in 2009, and I stopped you because I wanted other people to be able to hear it. So can you go over that? Sure, a lot of us talk about overcoming story. challenges. And in 2009, it was a sunny Saturday afternoon, my wife and I were heading out on a, one of the parkways in Long Island that is known to be one of the most treacherous parkways called the Southern State Parkway. And I was the third car of a small accident, then I got rear-ended full speed. So I came the ham and the sandwich, I just did that, and they, essentially I had a very severe spinal, crushed part of my spine, a lower part of my spine. And among other things, I had a neck injury, a pelvic injury, a leg injury, shoulder. But I was a medical miracle because when I got to the hospital, I, they did all the x-rays and everything else like that. And they said, yeah, you have a very severe spinal injury. But I was able to walk in the hospital, essentially walk out of the hospital. And I'd never had hospital stay or an operation. And it was, it was amazing because what happened was my brother is a doctor and he set me up with a team of people. And I walked into the neurosurgeon's office and one of the people there was looking at my x-rays and MRIs and she started to cry. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, I'm looking at this and you shouldn't be. And then she said, the fact that you're here, somebody up there is looking, looking out for you. In fact, that you're here, even if you weren't alive, you should be in a wheelchair. And I don't know how this happened, she said, because given the extent of this injury, it's almost to the same extent. I don't know if you remember the singer, Teddy Pendergrass. He was a famous rhythm and blues singer out of Philadelphia. He was in a severe car accident. I had a similar injury to his. And unfortunately, he became a quadriplegic. So I started to cry. Let's get it. I started to cry. Maybe somebody up there was looking. Wow. Who knows what the answer was? The key thing with my injury is that my spinal column didn't rotate. I didn't understand it exactly, but basically, I got hit with full impact. And they estimated I got hit by a 55 mile. And I think, like, an, an, okay. I had a Honda Civic, a small car, and this particular person who hit me had a big Oldsmobile. Now, you can't put blame on people. I'm not angry over that. It just happened. You know, stuff like this, unfortunately, does happen. And these are the part of the challenges. Now, I had been in the exercise and fitness business all my life. I had a very unique job. I worked for a Fortune 500 company. I was one of the pioneers in what they call corporate fitness and wellness. I would build on-site 
exercise and fitness centers, and I had various ones all around the country. And I was what they considered the manager of fitness services. So I had been exercising and active all my life. Maybe that played a part in my ability to withstand this accident because my core may have been strong. But again, you don't know. I was fortunate enough to get involved in, in rehab right away. And I did my own rehab because I understood that. Because so I was the poster boy for rehab. I made sure I pushed myself, but up only to certain limits. And the more that I researched this injury and everything else like that, and the more doctors I saw, the more I learned how to cope with this. And every day is rehab for me since then. We're talking 2009, it's 13 years. It's one of these things. I, there are times where I was very angry. I was certainly very sad because why me? I'm a good person. I always try to do the right thing. I try to eat right. I try to exercise. You can't predict life's events. And then I started comparing wow. myself to other people. Then I realized I, have it, I had it pretty bad, but I didn't have it as bad as some other people. Because what happened in my town, I live in Floral Park, Long Island. Okay, it's one of these mom pot towns. They call it Mayberry RFD, the town that Tide forgot. Okay, very close knit family. All the streets are named after bushes and flowers and trees and so on. So you can find Carnation Avenue, Willow Street, so on and so forth. They're all over Tulip Avenue. They're all over the place. But in my town, this about three months after I got hurt, there was a tragedy that a family in my town was involved in a very serious auto accident in upstate New York. And it was in all the papers and everything where three young girls from that family, and there were other people who perished in the accident uh. too. And so I went to their funeral, which is in the middle of town, and thousands of people attended this. And here I'm standing with my back brace and my cane and everything else like that, feeling sorry for myself. And I'm looking at this. So suddenly, obviously my situation wasn't good. But I didn't have it as bad as I thought I did. And so I try to have perspective in my life. Stuff is going to happen. Something. All right. Two questions that I'm stuck with. Yes. You said you were driving with your wife. He was, was okay. She okay? All she did had was a little whiplash and a chipped tooth. I got the brunt of the accident because when I saw this car kind of barreling in behind me, I turned my car to the right a little bit, so I took the brunt of it. Yeah. And I literally felt my spine oh. go. Wow. And I knew I was hurt. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So when you say you walked in and you walked out, no, that doesn't no, no, mean no. that you were fine. You obviously yeah. it makes it seem like, Hey, I had this bad accident, but I'm fine. No. So you had the back. So you still needed a lot of rehab. Like three, and a lot three of, years of aggressive therapy. But as I said, every day is therapy for me. Now I'm on the treadmill every day. I do my exercise. I still, I walk wow. with a cane, you know, and, and maybe fast forward a little bit. Somebody once they asked me, how did I get into comedy? I said, if I can stand up, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. So that's one of the reasons that I got into stand-up comedy. I, I, you know, about three or four years ago. So there was a space between the accident and this. And there oh. were some series of events that prompted me to get into stand-up comedy, besides the fact that I was motivated to say, if I can stand up, I'm doing stand-up. Because as I mentioned before, I worked in a unique industry. I worked for a Fortune 500 company doing the fitness programming. And I remember yeah. 1980 to about 2006, okay? Wow. And I was just going to tell the story of that wow. because I had a pretty senior job over there. I had 14 facilities around the country. I had a lot of people working for me. We ran a very medically oriented fitness program. So it was not just a regular gym. So it was medically oriented. But I remember being called to a senior management meeting. It was in November of 2005 thinking that I'm going to get my 25th anniversary grandfather clock. I'm going to get a diversity award. And 
I felt something funny because I was sitting in this, in this boardroom there and it was the head of human resources. There was another person who walked in and another person walked in and then my boss on the phone from Chicago. And I said, this doesn't have the feeling that I'm going to get my clock. I'm going to follow the clock. So instead the announcement was made that they're eliminating my department and I got my clock cleaned instead. So the, yeah. the thing is, I, wow. I, I did, was in New Jersey because we had a big facility in New Jersey and I had all my managers from this, around the country flying in that day because we were going to do a budget meeting for 2006. So my boss oh said my to me, God. Bruce, you have to call up all your people and tell them not to come to New York, but you can't tell them. So imagine that conversation. Okay, guys, you can't come. Hillary, you can't come to New York. You're coming from, I know you're coming from Phoenix. Don't get on that plane. I can't tell you why there'll be a meeting at three o'clock. Sally, you're in Dallas. Don't get on the plane, but there's a meeting at three o'clock. I can't explain now. Hang up. And that was it. uh, And that was it. That was was a weird feeling too, because as I said, I had 25 years, so I had a good severance package, but you never want to go when somebody else tells you to go. I had 25 years of service. I had 50 years old. So I qualified what they call the 75 points. I was able to retire, if you want to call it that. But who wants to retire at age 50? So what happened was, I was, before, what happened was, you know, I had, this was November. Now, basically, I was told that we have to shut everything down by the end of December. So all my employees had to stick around and shut all the programming down. I got to stay till the end of January. And for that one month, I felt like a man without a country. Basically, I'm, I'm like a zombie going into work when there's none of my people there anymore. All my programs are shut. But you have to do what you got to do. I was fortunate enough, I left on January 31st of 2006. On February 1st of 2006, I had another job waiting for me. I found another job. So if I was double dipping, I was getting paid for my other job. Plus, I took this new job. But the problem, it was a reality check because I was making a pretty good salary in my other job. And the new job, I had settled for half the, half the salary with the proviso that if I can turn this business around, mm. I'll get the profits to make it up. 25% of nothing is guess what? Nothing. Yeah. I'm a realist. And that you... was a feat. I, I entered a, a facility that had three problems. Oh. It had a bad fire and was that was mismanaged. Oh. The staff was neglected. The facility was neglected and the members were neglected. And so I had to turn everything. I did the best I could. And you needed a lot of time. You needed a lot of money. And it just wasn't there. So at the end of the day, they, my three-year contract ended. I kind of was in no man's land, but I was 53 at the time. That was okay. I would figure it out. And then a month later, I got hurt in the auto accident. So then that kind of settled everything because I still, I couldn't go back in my business anymore of fitness because I was happy to be alive and walking. Essentially, again, my main focus was getting better. And so that was my main focus. And over the course of years, I did exceptionally well. Doesn't mean I know it hurts. Doesn't mean I have, don't have limitations, but you know, so some of the limitations are self-limitations, and I try not to let those stop me. But there are days you still feel sorry for yourself. You still hurt a lot. You still compare yourself. Gee, I wish I could be running today. I wish I could be out in the tennis court or whatever doing what I normally like to do. But I'm a realist also. So I try and find something else as a substitute. And I always loved comedy. My, I had a sarcastic family, which is in a way good. And I used to go to the clubs. I used to go enjoy Rodney Dangerfield, go see him in the city and some other clubs. So I said, maybe this is something for me. So I told my wife one day, I said, I saw a course online that says, you know, you can take this and become a comedian. I knew you can't become a comedian online course, 
But there are other courses that were live, like a six-week class you can take. And I enrolled in one, and I had, a, I had a ball. And I learned the basics of trying to be a comedian. But what also prompted me to do that was that I remember when I was, I got my master's at Queens College in exercise science, got my undergraduate there as well. And I remember when I was taking some graduate classes, I was very disappointed in the teachers, some of the teachers, because I didn't feel that they were as committed as they should be. Some of these adjunct teachers that they had. And I got very angry because I had a couple of times where a teacher got into class and said, you're not prepared for this class. We're ending early. And I got so angry over that. I said, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach at Queens College or whatever the college is. And I was able to come back as an adjunct there for several years and also with Delphi and NYU doing what I enjoyed doing because I felt that I got rooked in some respects. And this is exercise science. And what did you teach? Exercise and fitness class. It was graduate oh. classes I taught there. I was an adjunct there, and I had a full load of adjunct classes while I was still working full-time. And I had to cut some of that out because I was traveling on my job, and I couldn't give 100% commitment. I don't, want to, I don't want to do it. And they were sad that I left. And right. the one thing I regretted, talk about regrets, when I was working with my job, I could have gone and got my Ph.D. or E.D.D., and the place would have paid for it. And it hurt huh. me because when I lost my job, I had an opportunity to at least interview for some college jobs but I didn't have my PhD or EDD, so I couldn't do that. So if there's one thing I do regret, I had the opportunity of my job to get free education beyond above my master's. And I thought my job was secure. Why should I bother doing that? I just had my son. There were other things in life going on. Uh, that would have been too much of a hassle to go do that, going into New York City at night after I just worked. Day. Of course, hindsight is everything. But I don't... I'm, oh. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a question? How did back in the, I don't know, when you, 1980 or whenever you were in school, how did you pick that? That wasn't a popular thing yet. No. That's a great how question. You, That's a great question. What made you pick that? I, when I went to high school, actually, when growing up in New York City, we had some program called the SP program. And the SP program essentially said that you can skip eighth grade. You can take this test and you can go from seventh grade to ninth grade. And so I took that and looking back, wow. I said, well, why would I want to skip a grade looking back? But that then it seemed pretty cool. I get out of junior high school quickly. I can graduate faster. So I graduated high school at age 17. Okay. Immature. But I had in my mind that I wanted to be a vet. So I enrolled in a college upstate oh. New York. It was a two-year college, uh, an agricultural technical college. They had a veterinary, pre-veterinary program over there. And my ideal thing, I'd do well there and I'd go to one of the veterinary schools, all laid into that. But being 17, immature, naive, when I got up there, it seemed that studying was secondary to doing other things. Didn't mean I did bad, but I didn't do well enough to feel that I was going to get in veterinary school. Mm. I had to be realistic about this. So that was a, an eye-opener saying, I did a year there, maybe it's time to come back home. So I came back home, and still I'm 18 and 19 years old, so... It was a long way to go from there. And uh, I remember that a friend of mine and I were in the same boat. He didn't really know what he wanted to do. And he was thinking, maybe we should go to Queens College. Queens College was one of the top New York City schools. CUNY, they call it, City University of New York. And back then, it was free tuition. It was great. So we still had to have a good average to get in. So we got in there, and we both love exercise and fitness and playing games. So he said, let's go into the phys ed department. Let's, say, let's become a phys ed major. 
And we became phys ed majors. We did well there. And then it came for a master's program. I said, you just can't go to phys ed program. I don't want to teach business education in the college and the high schools. I want to do something different. So while I was going there, a friend of mine was working at a major corporation doing corporate fitness. And he said, this place is looking for some part-time help. How would you like to do it? So I did. And then another place said, hey, Bruce, I, I, I could use you in this place part-time. And eventually the place where I wound up for 25 years said, we have an opening as well. How would you like to do it for us? So I became like a substitute employee for a lot of these places by almost working full-time. And again, going for my master's degree at night. So it fell into play. I enjoyed it a lot. I excelled there. I was very good with people. I seemed to pick up on you know, what they were trying to do. And it was really, it, it seemed a good fit for me. My friend went the other route and went to physical therapy. Okay. And he, but also yeah. in the meantime, in all this other stuff, we both applied for the fire department. And both of us passed the fireman's <laughs> written test. We did very well. And uh, he eventually became a fireman and a physical therapist. Me, what happened with me, I had somebody in my town who was pushing me. He was a, I don't know what, Italian commander, whatever it was. He, I used to walk my dog and I used to see him. He said, Bruce, you'd be great for the fire department, take the test, which I did along with my friend. And then it came to the physical part of the fire department. You got, you got to have the whole physical test beyond the, on the written test. And about three days before that, I was playing basketball at the college and somebody ran across the court head first and hit me in the face, in my nose, and smashed my nose and basically put my nose on the other side of my face and broke it. So again, that's another oh. story. That's another story right yeah. there. Talk about challenges, pretty bad injuries. So I went downstairs to the nurse's office and I said, I know I broke my nose. I got to get to the hospital. And back then in Queens College, the, you, had a, you didn't have parking on campus. You parked a mile away. So it was, terrible. It was tough to park. So I knew I wasn't going to walk to my car, oh. and the hospital wasn't that far away. So they put ice on it, and I said, no, I have a friend in one of the classes. Can I go to that class, ask her if she can take me to the hospital? And so I did that. I walked into the class, and I went up to the instructor, and I said, can you do me a favor? I had the ice pack on my face. I said, I broke my nose. My friend is in the class here. I want to know if she can drive me to the hospital. And she said, not in my class. You're not going to interrupt my class. And everybody in the class went, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, oh. So I said, I'm not going to argue right now. My, literally, my nose is on the right side of my face. So I walked back to the nurse's station. Right. And I said, get me to my car. So I had security drive me to my car, and I drove myself to the hospital. And so when oh. I saw this guy afterwards, another week later, and he saw this thing on my face, he said, what's going on? I said, here's what happened. And I said, I was supposed to have the physical part of the fire thing, but I didn't go because I broke my nose. He said, why don't you let me know? Like we could have easily postponed it. But at that time, I wasn't thinking straight. Uh, Things happen for a reason. Who knows what the answer is? Nobody can tell. Yeah. Going forward, as far as getting into comedy, after doing all this stuff and everything, I always said, I always wanted to do stand-up and I had the injury and so on and so forth. But a good friend of mine, she used to put on fundraisers for various organizations. And part of these organizational fundraisers, she used to hire comedians. So sometimes I would go to the clubs with her and in her own way, not interview the comedians, but see the comedians performing and see this one's good, this one we like, and get them on the show. One year, I, I didn't do this. I was with her and in the fundraiser, and she hired a, a person who's been on TV, has been national headlining. Um, I'm not going to name names, 
But anyway, this person performed, but I, and he did really well. But I was lucky enough when it came for dinner time, that person sat next to me. So I got to talk with this person during dinner and after he performed. So I got a feeling of who this person was and what the comedy was all about. I thought it was great. The next year he was invited back. And the same thing sat next to me. That was good. But I noticed something was off. Something was different about this guy. And when he performed, he got out there. Instead of doing 45 minutes, he did about 20 minutes. And the crowd wasn't with him. You can just tell the attitude wasn't there. And that light bulb went up in my head again and said, hey, it was almost like my Queens College experience where I felt the eyes young teacher were holding their own. I felt the same thing there, and I got angry. Because here's a guy who had an opportunity, and he got paid good money, let me tell you. And I said, if I ever get that opportunity, I'm going to take a stand-up class and see how far I can go. And so that prompted me also to take the stand-up class. Maybe out of anger. I don't know what it was. I'm not Jerry Seinfeld. I'll probably never be Ray Romano. I'll probably never be Chris Rock or name, name a comedian. But I want to be the best that Bruce Lipsky can be. And, and I've been fortunate enough that taking classes, I've been out there like everybody else trying to make it. I'm not a big fan of open mics. Again, I'm 66 years old. I'm not old. You know, but four, you've only years. been doing this class three four years. years. ago. The first year I really didn't do yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. some of that funny. is a proviso to some getting to somebody's club. So I'll be honest with you, being new to comedy, there's a pecking order of how you get on stage. There are open mics you can go to, and you can, 10.30 at night, and I've been to some of them yeah. where I'm, I'm three times the age of everybody there, and they're, they're drinking, and they're smoking, and they're high, or whatever, and coming to the stage is me, talking about my mother-in-law. Yeah, you know, or whatever. You know, so totally different. And they're talking about subjects that I would never talk about. The millennials versus I call myself the perennial. Yeah. So, but you know, it's like this, you have to pay your dues, whether you're 20 years old or 80 years old in the comedy business. And part of paying your dues is if you want to get on stage, they call them bringers. Okay. You probably heard of the bringer show mentality mm -hmm. that, hey, Bruce, you're the funniest comedian to me if you can bring six people on a Tuesday night. You can get on stage and just stare at the audience <laughs> and not say a darn word. And I'll love you for that. If you keep on bringing six people every Tuesday. In the beginning, I was bringing people. I mean, in the beginning, it's okay yeah. because people want to see you. You're fresh, you're exciting. But after a while, how many times yeah. can you bring people to these shows? My wife, after a while, said, oh, do I have to go to one of these shows again? Because the, the level of comedy was at my level, <laughs> plus a few higher level comedians and a headliner. And sometimes the bringer shows, they'd pile 10, 12, mm. 14 comedians on there because they want to put the rear ends in the seats. I totally understand the business model. I don't fault the business model because the clubs have to survive. The promoters have to survive. Everybody has to survive. But there comes to a point where you're in a comedian's life that you've got to get past the bringer shows. All right? How do you get past the bringer shows? You've got to have people notice that you're funny. And also, not just being funny. You're not an idiot. Mm. You're respectful. You show up on time. You don't have an attitude. If the promoter or producer says, Bruce, you're going on first, you're going on sixth, you're going on eighth, that's fantastic. I couldn't ask for a better. Bruce, you're doing three minutes, you're doing six minutes, you're doing 10 minutes. That's fantastic. I'll do whatever you want me to do. You don't complain. You don't argue. You don't bitch about things. And I've seen too many of these people up. Oh, I'm on third. Oh, why am I on third? Why am I up after him? Why don't I go on first? Hey, stage mm. time is precious. So would you say that you've gotten past I won't say I'm completely the past the bringer shows point? because there's some promoters out there that say, that say every show is a bringer show. 
I don't care if you're Sebastian Maniscalco. I don't care if you're Jay Leno. The idea is if hopefully you have a following that wants to see you. But there's a difference between that and saying if you don't mm. bring six people, you're not getting on stage. Those shows I don't do anymore. Those shows I won't. But are you doing the same jokes? Like I've heard some comedians, they practice the same jokes. There's a couple of things. Because you yep. then who, if you're oh, bringing the yeah. same people every time, it's oh, yeah, like, yeah. do it's I really the, have all to hear our, that All joke? of our sets <laughs> elevate. That's a great point. It's an excellent point because let's face it, there are some comedians that you'll hear the same stuff every time. Doesn't mean it's not funny. But after a while, it's even if you saw, I just saw Sebastian Maniscalco last week here. Uh, he was in one of the local venues. He did an over an hour. And he did all fresh new mm -hmm. material, okay? But he's, a, he's at a different level. Can I do an hour of material? I probably could do an hour of material. Will it be high-level material? But not even every comedian, I don't care, they have their A game, and, and there's not every joke is going to land. Let's face it, just the fact that there's different people in the audience. But for the most part, if you can keep people laughing, that's the key thing. I always am trying to write new, because you want, as you get better in comedy, you want your sets to elevate, not only elevate in the sense of that you get out there and it's what they call jokes per minute, okay? Okay, the comedians usually use the word jokes per minute. High-level comedians get at least six laughs per minute. That's one, that's one laugh for every 10 seconds. They usually say if you get four wow. laughs per minute, you're doing very well, okay? So you're told one laugh every 15 seconds. There are some comedians, I've heard some sets, and some, some people have analyzed other comedian sets there was one time when one famous comedian was getting 11 or 12 laughs a minute at the high point of his set. It didn't start out that way. It may have started out at four or five, and it built up to a crescendo right. of like 10 or 11 jokes in a minute. I, my style, there were a lot of different styles in comedy. Obviously, you're very well, well about that. Some people are storytellers. I'm more of what the old Borschfeld type of guy, the head of Youngman's, the Rodney Dangerfields. I like one-liner jokes. Boom, boom. If I do a set, let's say I did a set this morning. I did an eight-minute set. And you're probably talking 55 to 60 jokes in that, that eight-minute set. Do yeah, you memorize yeah, all yeah. that? You just, that maybe it wasn't exactly 55, but saying I can. No, but oh, how, do you have a script or do you here. literally? See, see, the neat thing about comedy wow. is, in some ways is because I write my own material that if I get on stage and I forget a line or I screw up a line, nobody knows it. You sent me, and of course, I get angry at myself that right. I screwed it up. But I remember I was on a show a couple of weeks ago, and somebody came up to me after me and said, Bruce, you probably did two to three times more jokes in that 15 minute set than anybody else over here. Because a lot of them are being one liars. There's good things about that. Good things about that. If I have to if I have to do a lot of those, and you don't like one or two of my jokes, I have other ones to replace it. You're telling a long story that has pieces mm. and parts in there of jokes. And you don't get to that, you don't get to those fast enough, you turn the audience off. I know several comedians, when they start out, they're storytellers, which is perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with telling stories. But you have to, if you have five minutes on stage and you take a minute just to take your first joke, that, that again, it's, it's not yeah. storytelling, it's, it's joke telling. How do you know, let's say you've done, I don't know, a 15-minute set. How do you know what was good? Were you recorded? Do you have right. to remember? How can you think about everything? It's all a combination of things. So obviously, joke. as I said, not every joke hits. And one of the problems that I, if you want to call it a criticism that people have about my comedy, is that sometimes I talk too fast. Mm -hmm. I don't let people get a chance to react to the joke because I'm going oh. on to the next one. That's what I'm working on. Because still, I'm still young in comedy. Number two, 
Sometimes I can be at a lull. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
And I keep on, when I say push myself, my limit, what the proper limit is. But going back, it's, you know, you've got an attitude. You have to have a positive attitude, especially with COVID. Because when people are getting sick with COVID in the beginning, COVID wanted you to crawl up in a ball and die. Baby. And I, I refuse to do that, obviously. But a lot of people just felt so bad. And even just other things in life. They'll look at the economy now, with the COVID and the schools. Everything is so mishmash. Everybody's life is being impacted. There's stress out there. And I'm no perfect person. Doesn't mean I don't get stressed. Doesn't mean I don't hurt. Doesn't mean I don't feel sorry for myself. But you can't bask in that stuff. You have to feel like there's something positive to look forward to. And I think the comedy has really helped me out a lot. Because with the comedy, it allowed me to be use my mind, keep my mind fresh, meet people. I met so many people around the world on Zoom, doing Zoom comedy shows. I met a new bunch of people I never would have met before, but I had to put myself out there. They usually tell me I'm one of the busiest people out there in comedy with Zoom and even some of the live shows I'm doing and other things. I've, I've been fortunate to do voiceover for a cartoon, and I actually just wrapped up my first movie I was in as an actor. Yep, I just finished filming my part last week. Yeah. Did you get that? I put myself out there. Just from basically. meeting people? And somebody uh, threw me yeah, and, uh, and uh, somebody found me. People say I have the rare model voice, and I, have, I look like James Cromwell, if James Cromwell, um. the actor, is. It's some combination. But anyway, I was fortunate to get on a, in a film. It's an independent film, and I, I, it was perfect for me because it was my first time acting for a film. And so I have a decent amount of lines, but I don't have too many lines that I couldn't. And they were very accommodating, very good. And it's an independent film, and hopefully it'll be released sometime in the fall. And uh, it's not a high-budget film. It's a real film. It's a full-length film. And I'm excited. You Various places, where did upstate, you film that? in actually, where we wound up filming, your state last Thursday, Greenwich, Connecticut, we filmed. But before that, we were filming oh. in, uh, up in Purchase, New York. Yeah, at least my scenes are what uh, I was considered the yeah. boardroom scenes, which are indoor scenes. I played a presidential advisor, and I can't tell much more than that. But the idea is that hopefully you'll see me on screen. Yeah. Wow, yeah, so good for you. That's amazing. Yeah. Bruce, yeah, thank you so much. You really have an amazing story, and I really think starting from your car accident and not giving up and just being a back well, when you were a corporate fitness person. Well, I'm, let me I'm ask here, you one I'm question. Here. I know I keep trying to wrap up but it, you're too you're too interesting what happened to that business did corporate fitness go by the way like well, they still have some of it. They have it, it, it anymore, depends it all depends on the company my company the good news is i grew my corporate fitness business when i say business the department into an eight or a nine million dollar budget that was the good news because we had so many different facilities the bad wow. news is i grew it to an eight or nine million dollar budget you know Yes, here's $9 million we can save. Thank you very much. But it really wasn't $9 million because there's, right. there's a lot of other factors there that come into play that you can take away from that $9 million. You know, it, it, it's still around, but a lot of the, if they do have to fit in this program, oftentimes they're, they're, they're outsourcing them. They're outsourcing them. They have a management right. company. Everything is outsourcing management. Somebody let somebody else manage it. We'll pay a 20% premium on this. But you deal with the human resource problem here we have with your employees. You, you deal with all this other nonsense. We'll pay you your mm. fee. You take care of everything else. So that's, in some ways, it's a good way of doing business, but it takes away the personal personalization because we ran a very specific, unique program that you'll never see again. And I was thankful that I was, I was part of that. You know, so I, I, 
Yeah, when you say it was essentially in order to get into our programs, you, you had to that? go through blood testing, fitness testing, sometimes stress testing, having to have a cardiologist or a physician approve you for a nurse approve you. And some people who have diseases, we ran cardiac rehab programs, we ran other things. So we had some really interesting programs. Wow. So everything was on site. And, and when we first started, it was all free. We provide the uniforms, we provide everything, everything. You just basically show, have your own locker, you keep your sneaker in, and all your personal stuff in there. Come in, have a good time. Everything else was there for you. And we had fun. We had a lot of fun because it was very loose. Because when you're in a gym atmosphere, a different mindset. I dealt with the David Rockefellers. I dealt with right. all those different people. Yeah, I knew him. He was in my program. And other people were high-level people. And I got to call him a first name like he called me my first. And I met my wife actually through the bank also. My wife and I married for 30 years. She, We didn't meet because she was in my fitness program. We met through a, a per, an, a, another friend, like a mutual friend. I got a guy for you. I got a girl for you type of thing. But she was an uptown girl. I was a downtown guy. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's my story. Yeah. Did you meet in the no, middle? No, she came. She came actually she down to me because she was coming down for a meeting. <laughs> she said, "I'm going to give you ten minutes only." Ten minutes turned into an hour. We we hit it off fairly well. But she was a very unique personality. She was a driver. She was like a taskmaster. She was trying to tell me how I should live my life the first five minutes we had our date. But the again, we can keep on going. The interesting thing about meeting my wife is that. I say, usually we have a first date. It's a usual small talk. Okay, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Queens. Oh, I'm from Queens too. That's amazing. Where'd you go to college? I went to Queens College. Oh, I went to Queens College. What's your sign? They hit that sign. My sign was, oh, let me get the heck out of here. What's my sign? Speak to a caution ahead. So she said, what's your sign? I said, well, I, don't, I, I know what my sign is. They said, well, when were you born? I said, I was born in January. And she said, I'm born in January too. And she said, I have a very unique story about this. She says, I'm born January 27th. And my sister was born January 20th. And because birthdays are together, we always celebrated on the 28th. And my mother said, one day you're going to meet a man born on January 28th. And so when my wife, after told me that story, she says, Bruce, when are you born? I said, January 28th. And she said, you're full of it, Bruce. No, no way you're not. Way. You're just kidding me. So twice on that first date, I had to take out my wallet. First First, I had to take it out to show that my driver's <laughs> license said my birthday is January 28th. And secondly, to pay for the lunch. So imagine that. Uh, What's the chances of that? What's the chances wow. of that? Yeah, yeah. So we have That's birthday incredible. celebrations. It's January 27th, wow. 8th, and 9th. And actually, we have a friend of the family who was born January 26th. So my mother-in-law every year takes us oh, out gosh. for the family <laughs> birthday. Yeah. How do you figure that one out? How do you figure that wow. out? That's a great yeah. story. So, yeah. I love it. All right. Thank yeah, you so much, Bruce. I think we could talk forever and maybe we could talk again. It was very interesting. I love your story. It's very inspiring. And you bring me back. Know, thank I'm you happy for taking to come the time. back anytime you want. Right. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate All right. it. Awesome.